0: Well, tonight we're going to be in Esther chapters 4 through 6. For those of you that weren't with us last week, we covered the first three chapters, and this is going to be part two of a three-part series going through the book of Esther. So if you would go ahead and turn to Esther chapter 4. We'll go ahead and pray and just dive right in. Heavenly Father, once again, we come before you tonight to to spend this time in your word, to seek your face, Lord, to to truly seek your heart and your wisdom as it's imparted to us. I pray that you would give me your words to speak and not my own, and that you would guard each one of our hearts and our minds, Lord, that we would just clearly discern everything you desire to speak and let everything else fall to the wayside. Lord, we also continue to lift up Pastor Charlie and his wife Ceci, Lord, that you would just give them a a refreshing time away, that they would enjoy the, the time, that they would enjoy the time with each other, enjoy the time with you, and that you would bring them safely back, Lord, and bring Pastor Charlie back to the pulpit, just energized and prepared for everything that you desire to do and speak through him. So we give you this time and all that we are, and we ask and pray all these things. In the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, amen. So last week, we studied the first three chapters. And just as a way of review, there's a couple of things that are interesting about the book of Esther. One of the first ones is that there's no actual direct mention of prayer or God throughout the entire book. And so much so that one of the early church fathers, Martin Luther actually petitioned and and was trying to get everyone to pull it out from the Bible. He He just really didn't believe as did many of them that that it was worthy of being considered canon or being a part of the Bible and yet we clearly see God's hand throughout this entire book even though his name is not directly mentioned and one of the things that happens is that prayer is indirectly inferred you know we're going to see that tonight we also saw it a little bit last week in chapters one through three where they begin to fast and they go before the Lord they're in sackcloth they're in ashes and they're doing these things and and I mean just logically thinking about it what is a diet going to do to change anything So when it says that they're fasting, it wasn't just that they were going on a diet because that was going to change something. They were fasting, they were praying, they were beseeching God. They were seeking the face of God and trying to to get something to happen, trying to see change come about. But the second thing that we didn't really talk too much about last week is that the name of God is actually hidden no less than eight times in what are called acrostics. Acrostics are just different ways that you can manipulate or put certain letters you know, it's kind of like a code. You know, some of you guys, there's a, a lot of shows right now about spies from the old days, especially from, you know, the, the world, uh, world War I, talking about the Revolutionary War, all these different things. And acrostics are similar to that, where you can take the first letter of each word, and then if you just pull those letters out, it creates a word unto its own. And so what happens is eight times you see the word Yahweh, which is W or Y-H-W-H, you also see E-H-Y-H, which is I am, which is the same thing that was talked about in Exodus at the burning bush, and also Mashiach, Yeshua, and El Shaddai. So all of these things appear, even though they're not directly written, they were hidden there. Many scholars believe that the reason for that is because they were still in an occupied land, and so they couldn't outwardly describe these things, so they were hidden in the story of Esther. And so so that's just some of the interesting things about that. Um, The last thing about just the the words, in the original language, there's a phrase that that we're going to see next week. And it says, the enemy is this wicked Haman. And, you know, not to get too deep into it, but what would happen is when the scholars, the biblical rabbis, when they would go back through and they would copy the text... One of the ways that they would ensure accuracy so that everyone was the same because they didn't have copy machines, they didn't have printers, they didn't have all these things that we have nowadays is that each letter had a numeric value. And when you would add them up, that's how they would determine if all the letters and all the words were in the correct order and in the correct place. And so that one phrase, the enemy is this wicked Haman, in the original language totaled 666. So just an interesting thing to think about as you go through that. But we talked about in chapter 1, Xerxes was the king of Persia. Xerxes was a a very famous modern character for us nowadays. The movie 300 and a lot of the things that have taken place to describe what happened with that battle. This was the king of Persia that took that army and they went to invade Greece and to, to try to conquer them. Xerxes, his power, his anger, his drunkenness, all of these things were were just without bounds. Just tremendous. Tremendous anger, tremendous power, but also tremendous drunkenness. And as he went through his life, there were a couple of different things that happened. And one of them is talked about in chapter one, where he's thrown this six-month party. For six months, they bring everybody into the, the capital of the kingdom, and they throw this party. And on the last day of the very last feast, he calls for his queen, Queen Vashti, to come into the the presence of a bunch of drunken men, so that basically they can ogle her, so that they can just look on her beauty. And she refuses, and what ends up happening is that they remove Queen Vashti from being queen, and then they send out this law, this decree, that all women who are married should obey their husbands without question. And that whatever the husband says goes. And it was just a a very, very strange way to to have that come about. But that goes on. And so then after the events of chapter 1, Xerxes takes this huge army. And that's when the the events of the movie 300 take place. That's when he goes and he tries to invade Greece. Approximately three years later, we get to chapter 2. And so he's already had this battle. He's come back. In a sense, he's been defeated. And now he doesn't even have a queen. Because this happened right before he went to battle. And so he comes back. He has no queen. So they go through and they do a bachelor-type beauty pageant. And so they bring all of these beautiful women from throughout all of the the known lands. From everywhere that they've conquered, they bring all of these beautiful women. And they go through a year's worth of preparation. Six months with myrrh and aloes. And then six months with just refining perfumes and fragrances. And so at the end of this year-long thing, then they get one night with the king. And he, he actually literally married each and every one of them. And he would marry them, and then he would go in and he would sleep with them. And then they would go, and they were now a concubine. Because he was just going through all of them, trying to find who would be the next queen. And so they would literally have one night alone with the king. Throughout all of that, you get Esther. Esther is a, a Jewish woman. She's been raised by her cousin Mordecai. And she finds favor in the eyes of everyone that's, that's involved with this beauty pageant. And she eventually wins the heart of the king. And so she becomes the the queen. They throw this great party for her. That's what they do. They throw parties for everything. So they have this holiday. They they give gifts. They do all these things. And she becomes the new queen. And then towards the end of that chapter in chapter 2, Mordecai, her uncle, her cousin, becomes a government official. And in the day-to-day duties, he hears of an assassination plot. And so he tells Esther about it, and Esther goes and she relays the the information to the king who investigates. He finds out that there was truth to it, and he actually hangs the two guys that were going to attempt to assassinate him. But nothing has happened, nothing for Mordecai. There's no royal parade. There's no reward. There's not even an acknowledgement of who Mordecai was or what he did. And so that that ends chapter 2. And then we got into chapter 3 where we began to find... A little bit about the character of our last main character, which is Haman. He was a descendant of Agag, the king of the Amalekites. Saul had spared the the king. Samuel later on went and killed that king, but Saul had also spared many of the Amalekites. And this man, Haman, was a descendant of the Amalekites. So Mordecai goes through and and after Haman rises to power, he becomes second in the land only to the king. He he gets to the place where everyone has to bow down to him, almost worship him. And there's one man that sits in the gates of the, of the capital. His name's Mordecai. And Mordecai chooses not to bow down to him. And so people keep coming and telling him, hey, how come you're not going to do this? Word finally gets back to Haman. And then the reasoning being that he was a Jew and the inference being that he served God and that there was only one true God. And so Haman is just completely just blown away that that anybody would do this when he finds out that he's a Jew there's no doubt some some hatred that's been stirring up in him because that's one of those things that that probably was passed down generation to generation the story of what had happened with King Saul and Samuel and Agag the king of the Amalekites and so all of this leads to Haman and his advisors coming up with this great idea that they're going to exterminate the Jewish race They're just going to wipe them out. And so they start casting lots, and it's kind of like throwing dice. And they cast lots, and they come on a day. This happened in April, and they decided that in March of the next year, they were going to do this. And so this decree goes out, and at Haman's request, the king approves it. And he sends it out as a royal decree. Something that can't be changed cannot be revoked. So once it's put into law, it is in effect. There's absolutely nothing that can be done to change that or to take it away. And it says that on March 7th of the following year, that all Jews are basically fair game. That it's not going to be murder. And in fact, they're encouraged to go out and to kill the Jews and to take all their possessions. And one of the last things for that is that Haman offers to pay what would be a modern equivalent of $30 million to the king so that this can get approved. Basically, he's giving him a bribe. And he says, you know what, I'm going to put $30 million into the the storehouses of the kingdom if you'll let me do this. And so the king goes ahead and he lets him do this. And so as we end chapter 3, everyone in the, the capital is just tripped out cannot believe that this is happening one day to the next in their minds. You know, the the day before, nothing was going on. Everything was fine. The next day, all the Jews are going to get wiped out. And they give them nine or 11 months to think about it, to prepare for that. And so that ends chapter 3, and so we pick it up in chapter 4. So in verse 1 of chapter 4, it says, When Mordecai learned all that had happened, he tore his clothes, and he put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city he cried out with a loud and bitter cry, and he went as far as the front of the king's gate, for no one might enter the king's gate clothed with sackcloth. And in every province where the king's command and decree arrived, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting, weeping, and wailing, and many lay in sackcloth and ashes. And so everybody understands what this means. It's not like this secret. It's not something that you know, would be decoded need to be decoded. This was just plain it was just sent out. They're all going to die. It was basically a death warrant for all of them. And what's really really interesting about all of this is that there were probably between 5 and 7 million Jews that this was going to affect. 5 to 7 million Jews. You know, it's an interesting number especially when you consider how many Jews were killed during the Holocaust. You know, this is something that that Satan's been trying to do since The beginning, since back in the garden, to do whatever he can to foil God's plan for a Messiah. But all of this stuff takes place and it's going to affect five to seven million Jews. Now, previous to that, 17 years prior, one of the previous kings of Persia had actually granted a request for all of the Jews, anyone who wanted to, to go back to Jerusalem, to go back to their homeland, to rebuild the temple. And not only that, but they would basically be paid to go back and do that. We find that account in Ezra chapter 1. You can go through that whole chapter and it gives you that whole description of all the things that happened. This king comes on and he just tells him, you know, what? It, whatever you need take with you. You know, that he he acknowledged God as the one true living God. And he sent the Jews back. As long as anyone who wants to go. And out of five to seven million Jews, 60,000 went back. I mean, that's amazing to me, that they were sent back, they were going to be paid to be relocated. They were going to be paid to, to be sent back to this place that they had been dragged away from, that they had been talking about for years, next year in Jerusalem, that all of these things, they wanted to go back. And then they finally get a golden opportunity, not just to go back, but to go back wealthier than they left and only 60,000 choose to go. Millions stayed and so now we get 17 years later all of these millions of Jews are going to be affected. They've been given a huge opportunity and they chose not to take it. The comfort of their own devices had kept them from God's provision and that's the first thing for us tonight is are we too comfortable with us? Are we too comfortable with the things that we have, the things that we feel we have attained? Obviously, that's faulty logic from the beginning because God has blessed us with everything that we have. But do we get to that place where we feel like, like we're just in a comfort zone? You know, one of the songs that we sang tonight, called me higher, it, it really speaks to that. And it's one of the reasons that I love singing that song and, and just thinking about the meaning of it. Are we really Willing to say, wherever you will lead me, I'll go. Are we really willing to say that? Because God not only was offering them the opportunity, but he, w- he had sweetened the deal for them. And still they didn't want to go. Still they didn't want to go. They weren't sensitive to what God was desiring to do. And so this degree goes out, and so Mordecai hears about it along with all the other Jews, and he tears his clothes, he puts on sackcloth and ashes. and And Esther, during this whole time, has largely been shielded from all of this information. She's been in the the capital, but she didn't hear about all the decrees that went out. She didn't really know what Haman was planning to do, and she had no idea that her cousin Mordecai was in this kind of a jam, and that really Mordecai had created this whole situation. And so Esther finds out about this, and in verse 4 it says, Esther's maids and eunuchs came and told her, and the queen was deeply distressed. Then she sent garments to clothe Mordecai and take his sackcloth away from him, but he would not accept them. And then Esther called Hathach, one of the king's eunuchs, whom he had appointed to attend her, and she gave him a command concerning Mordecai to learn what and why this was. So Hathach went out to Mordecai in the city square that was in front of the king's gate. And Mordecai told him all that had happened to him, and the sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries to destroy the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the written decree for their destruction, which was given at Shushan, that he might show it to Esther and explain the written decree for their destruction, and that he might command her to go in to the king to make supplication to him and plead before him for her people. So Hathak returned and told Esther the words of Mordecai. And so Mordecai... Sends back word to Esther, look, this is what's happened. He even sent a copy of the decree back to her so that this servant could explain what had taken place and, and what was going to happen 11 months from then. And the reason, not only for, for his sorrow, but the reason that she should be sorrowful as well. And so in verse 10, Esther spoke to Hathak and gave him a command from Mordecai. All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that any man or woman who goes into the inner court to the king... Who has not been called, he has but one law, put all to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter, that he may live. Yet I myself have not been called to go into the king these thirty days. And so they told Mordecai Esther's words. And so it, this is kind of like the the telephone game, I'm sure. They they're sending messages back and forth, and some of it gets lost in translation. But the gist of what. What Mordecai said is, you have to do something. And what Esther sends back to Mordecai is, you don't understand what you're asking. You're asking me to put my life on the line because there's one law about this. That if someone goes into the court of the king and he has not called them, that you shall put them to death unless he raises his golden scepter. It's like this totally arrogant and weird thing that would happen but but basically the king would just sit on his throne you know i that's always tripped me out about some of the movies of of olden times you know you see the king just sulking by himself in this big room sitting on a throne like what what could you possibly do you know i, I get it nowadays cuz you got a phone or you know an ipad or whatever but but what would you do just sit there by yourself with a scepter in your hand would you like Nobody has that deep of a thought process. I mean, it doesn't take that much. But for whatever reason, the king had this decree, and he would sit there. And, and there would be, you know, the attendants, the servants. But, but these were not people to speak to. These were beneath him. And so he, he has this court, and, and, and Esther says, look, I can't go in there. Not only is all of that the case, but everybody knows Xerxes' temper, his anger how vindictive he can be. Everybody knows what happened to the last queen, which is the reason that Esther is actually a queen now. And on top of that, it's been 30 days since the king has called for her. That means she has not seen him in 30 days. And the the inference there is that maybe she's fallen out of favor with the king. Maybe the, the king doesn't doesn't see her as being as beautiful as she once was or doesn't, doesn't enjoy her company, whatever it was, 30 days was a long time for her not to be called in. And so she goes and she sends this message to Mordecai and she says, you just don't understand what you're asking. It's a difficult thing that you're asking of me. And I think that many times we, we understand that. We can sympathize with that because that's our excuse for a lot of the things that we don't do that God has called us to do. Because, God, you don't understand how difficult this thing that you're asking is. You don't understand the challenge that it's going to be. You don't understand the opinion that these people have about you. Or you don't understand the opinion that these people will have about me when they find out about you. Whatever the case might be, whatever the situation is, is that the response? Is that the proper response? Lord, the thing that you're asking is too difficult. We know throughout the word of God that he will never put something upon us that he is not faithful to empower us to do. God's never going to ask something of you or me that we can't do in his strength. So there is never going to be something that we could actually have that answer as a realistic response. Lord, this, this thing that you're asking is too difficult. But that was Esther's response, and so Mordecai is told the answer, and he sends back one more response to Esther. He says in verse 13, Do not think in your heart that you will escape in the king's palace any more than all the other Jews. For if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. Yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. And so Mordecai sends back to her, you know what? Basically, the ball's in your court. It's up to you what you're going to decide to do. God's going to deliver us one way or another. Somehow, God is going to do this. But if you choose to remain silent, you are going to perish. You're not going to get the opportunity to be used in the deliverance. But also on top of that, Mordecai is almost prophesying in a sense and telling her you're going to perish. You and all your father's house. And so Esther, in verse 15, tells them to reply to Mordecai, Go gather together all the Jews who are present in Shushan and fast for me. Neither eat nor drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will fast likewise. And so I will go to the king, which is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went his way and did according to all that Esther had commanded him. And so Esther sends back a reply. You know, this is a man that that she respected as, as a father figure in her life. She had been raised from a very, very early age by this man. And so his words carried weight. And we see that she still greatly respected him, not only as a father figure, but also as a wise man. And so she tells him to go and to get all of the Jews that are in the capital, to get them together and to fast for three days, to not eat or drink for three days. And just to, again, the inference, to spend that time in prayer, to ask God, And then she says, and so I will go to the king, which is against the law. Just a reminder, Mordecai, you know, in case you want to change your mind, this is against the law, what you're asking me to do. But in three days' time, I will go ahead and I will go do that. And if I perish, I die. If I perish, I perish. If I die, I die. Again, just so many pictures for us of our life with Jesus. And what are we called to do? To die. To lay down our lives to lay down the flesh, to to let all of those things be carried away and to put on the new man, to be resurrected, literally and figuratively. And so that's the picture that we see here, that they they fast, they pray, and it's three days, three days. Three days is a very very important time frame throughout the Word of God. And so the three days take place. Mordecai goes his way, does all that that Esther had commanded him, and then we get to chapter 5. In verse one, it says, now it happened on the third day that Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace across from the king's house while the king sat on his royal throne in the royal house facing the entrance of the house. Again, just that, that picture I'm sure that most of us have seen, in, in, whether in a book or in a movie, in a television show, is this huge grand hall hall. And the king is sitting there on his throne facing the entrance to the door. And so the queen goes and she puts on her royal robes and she stands in the inner court of the king's palace. In verse 2, So it was when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court that she found favor in his sight and the king held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. And then Esther went near and touched the top of the scepter and the king said to her, What do you wish, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given to you up to half the kingdom. I mean, talk about a response that was unexpected. Esther's talking to Mordecai, and she's telling him, look, I could die. You don't understand how difficult a thing it is that you're asking me to do. I haven't seen the king in 30 days. He hasn't called for me. He hasn't asked about me. He hasn't done anything for me. I may have fallen completely out of favor with him, and you're asking me to go in and to risk my life. And she's built up this huge case for why she should not go in there, why she is not the right person for this job. And then she goes in, And the very first thing that he does after bringing her in is she hasn't even asked for anything. She hasn't even said what she's there for. And he tells her, what do you want? Up to half of the kingdom, whatever you ask is yours. He may not have necessarily meant that literally. But in essence, he was saying, you know what, whatever you want. Whatever you want, just tell me. God had already been working behind the scenes. God had already prepared the king's heart. We, we talk about many times having our hearts prepared. You know, I, I can't tell you how many times I've prayed, not only for times in my own life, but prayed for other people that God would give them wisdom and give them the, the opportunity, give them the right words to speak in whatever the situation is. But one of the other things that I always make sure to pray for in those situations is that God would prepare the heart of the person that we're going to speak to. Because if God's already prepared their heart, sometimes we don't even have to say anything. And that's what happened here. They'd all been praying, and God had already prepared this man's heart. So he didn't even know what was going on in Esther's heart, what was going on in Esther's life. He didn't know the trepidation, the fear that she was going through, all the anxiety. She didn't know all the people that that were praying. All of this stuff had taken place, and God had already done all the heavy lifting. And so this difficult thing that you ask of me, it's too much, was actually a small thing because God had already done it all. God had already done it all. He was just waiting for someone to be willing. And it was just as Mordecai had said, that she had been placed in this position for such a time as this. And so Esther answered in verse 4, If it pleases the king, let the king and Haman come today to the banquet that I have prepared for him. And then the king said, Bring Haman quickly, that he may do as Esther has said. So the king and Haman went to the banquet, banquet that Esther had prepared. And so Esther begins to show some, some discernment here. You know, it's very, very likely that, as we talked about before, even though the king was by himself in in terms of people that he could talk to, that he had many attendants. There were probably several servants and, and just people that were beneath recognizing in his mind that were in this room. And so instead of just coming right out with the question and saying, you know what, Haman's sent this out, I'm a Jew. Because you know, again, he doesn't know. He doesn't know that his queen is a Jew. Instead of just coming out with it, she feels like it would be much better to have this conversation in a much more private setting. And so she invites him along with Haman to the banquet, and, and the king sends for Haman, and they go away quickly. And so in verse 6, at the banquet of wine, the, the king said to Esther, What is your petition? It shall be granted you. What is your request? Up to half the kingdom, it shall be done. And then Esther answered and said, My petition and request is this. If I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and fulfill my request, then let the king and Haman come to the banquet, which I will prepare for them. And tomorrow I will do as the king has said. And so they come to this banquet. They come to dinner. And again, there's probably other servants. But the, the only people that, that mattered were the king, the queen, and this man Haman. And so they have this banquet. And as they're eating and drinking, the king asks, So what is it that you really want? What, what is it that you want to ask me? And she again for whatever reason, decides that it's not the time. Did Esther know that maybe there was more that had to happen before she needed to to speak? Maybe it was that Esther was fearful of what the king might say and she still needed another day just to, to, to gather her wits and her courage. We don't know what the reason was. But the picture there that's given to us is pretty clear. That even though we've been given opportunities, not every opportunity is something that we need to jump into. We need to be discerning about the timing of everything that takes place in our lives. That God has called us to so many things that we have ruined because we've either jumped the gun and gone too quickly or because we've lagged behind. After God has said, it's time, it's time, it's time, and we've held back. We need to be discerning not just in the will of God but the timing of God. What is it that God wants to do in our lives and then what's the time frame that he wants to do that? We need to learn to be sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And one of the best ways that that I, I found it described was talking about power and authority. That there are two things in place in every situation in a Christian's life, and that's the power and the authority. We have been granted tremendous power through Jesus Christ. We have been granted tremendous power. We have been imbued, empowered, filled with the Holy Spirit of God. But that doesn't necessarily mean that we always have the authority to do whatever we want. So what has to happen is the power and the authority have to both line up. Which another way to think about that is the power is the ability to do something. And the authority is the permitted opportunity to do something. I'll give you a very, very simple example. We can talk about healing somebody. That still happens. It's, it's a miraculous thing. It's extraordinary. It's rare, at least in in Western culture, but it happens. But it doesn't happen all the time. Just because you were granted that opportunity and that power in that one instance doesn't mean that, that if you have prayed for somebody and you've seen God heal them instantly, that you now have the authority to go and use that power and just go to every hospital and just go up and down the halls and just start healing everybody you can try it but it doesn't happen does it because the power has been there but the authority the permitted opportunity the timing of god was not there there have also been cases going the other way you know one of my favorite stories about pastor chuck was about this this person that came up and they asked for prayer for for a family member that was that was in the congregation that night and so you know Pastor Chuck said, "Sure, sure, bring them on up i 'll pray for them, and, and so they bring this person up, and the person 's in a wheelchair, he prays that God would heal them they 're healed they, they hadn 't been able to walk for i don 't know how long, and God just healed them, healed them on the spot, and the, you know the, the family was just blown away because they were asking for prayer for a trip that they were taking, and just that God would get, grant them traveling mercies, that they would be able to get to wherever they were going safely. And Chuck, they didn't ask. They just said, you know, can you pray for so and so? And they brought so and so up and he prayed that God would heal them. And, and it happened. And one of his kids, one of Chuck's kids, saw him a, a couple of weeks later praying for somebody else that had a cold. And, and afterwards, the, the son asked, asked Pastor Chuck, you know, why, why? You know, a couple of weeks ago you healed somebody in a wheelchair, and then this week you can't heal somebody that has a cold? And he said, it's not my decision to make. It's not my decision to make. God does what he does, and I just follow his leading. And that was so, so profound to me. Like, this, I remember hearing this in a Bible study when I was probably, I don't know, eight, nine years old. And it has stuck with me all this time because that is such a tremendous understanding of the leading and guiding of the Holy Spirit. So there's a timing for all of these things, for healings, for speaking in tongues, even for verbally sharing the gospel. There are times that God has called us to share the gospel not in word but in deed and vice versa. There are times that God has called us to share through our words, not just through our deeds. But we need to be discerning what is it that God has called us to do this day and understand that God has empowered us for everything that he has permitted us to do. We just need to be discerning for that. And so, again, coming back to Esther, for whatever reason, she, she decided that this was not the time. And so we get to verse 9. Haman went out that day joyful and with a glad heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, and that he did not stand or tremble before him, he was filled with indignation against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. And he sent and called for his friends and his wife Zeresh. Then Haman told them of his great riches, the multitude of his children, everything in which the king had promoted him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and servants of the king. Moreover, Haman said, besides, Queen Esther invited no one but me to come in with the king to the banquet that she prepared, and tomorrow I am again invited by her along with the king. And so Haman go- comes out of this this meeting, this banquet, this dinner, and he's just flying high. You know, could there be anybody as just well off as me? And he comes out and one of the first things that he sees is Mordecai. Mordecai doesn't want to bow to him. Mordecai doesn't, doesn't fear him at all. You know, this is the, the man that's second in power only to the king. And Mordecai could care less, basically. He has no fear of this man. Doesn't worship him. Doesn't bow down to him. And so Haman is filled with indignation against against Mordecai. In other words, he, he hates him. All of that that happiness that he was just filled with, all that stuff that, that had just flooded his life was all gone. It was all gone by one man because he had looked at one man and one man didn't do what he wanted. One man didn't hold him in a high esteem that everyone else did. And because of that one man, all of that happiness was gone. And so Haman comes home, he calls for his friends and his wife, and, and he basically has the opposite of a pity party. You know, a pity party, you call everybody that you know and you just tell them, you know, woe is me and, you know, things are real difficult and this is hard and, and, you know, nobody understands and and you just go through all of the things that are going on in your life and why your life is so much harder than everybody else's. Well, Haman is doing the opposite. He's called them so that he can brag about how awesome his life is. He's called them there to tell them, have you seen my house? Have you seen all the riches that I have? Have you seen all of the, the awards on my wall? Have you seen all of this stuff? And besides all of that, did you know that I just came back from a private dinner with the king and queen where nobody else was invited but me, and I was invited to come back for another dinner of the same kind tomorrow night? And so he goes through, and and he's just bragging about everything. He's bragging about all the things that are going good in his life that he feels he's attained, that he deserved, that he achieved, whatever it is, And he's trying to find happiness. He's trying to find fulfillment in this. And yet this one man, Mordecai, was enough to knock him off of this pedestal. Because then in verse 13, he says, Yet all this avails me nothing, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. All of these things. He he goes through and he, he has this laundry list of just things that are amazing about his life and why you should envy him. Why you should want to be him. And then he says, but you know what? All of that means nothing to me because of this one person. Because of this one thing. And what a picture that is for us of the flesh. Because that's the, the, the two pictures that we have here. Mordecai being a picture of the spirit. And Haman being a picture of the flesh. That we just want and want and want. And it's never enough. Well, I'll be happy if I just have this. And then we achieve that. We get that. And then, well, it's still not enough. I'll be happy if I get this instead. And we're constantly trying to find that next great thing. For us inside the church, inside the body of Christ, hopefully that's not the dominant driving force. Sometimes it can become that, and that's a problem. But out in the world, that is the driving force. That is the main driving force, especially in our culture today. You know, we... Years ago, it used to be called keeping up with the Joneses. And, and now it's the same thing. I don't know what, what the, the going phrase is now, but, but it's just all trying to, to keep up or to surpass what everybody else has. It's one big comparison. Life is just one big comparison. You know, well, I don't have as much as so-and-so, but I have more than so-and-so. Or, you know what, I'm not as, as attractive as so-and-so, but I'm more attractive than so-and-so. Or you know what? I'm not as educated or wise as so-and-so, but I'm more educated and wiser than so-and-so. Everything's a comparison. Everything's a benchmark. And, and really, we, we, even when we as Christians fall into that trap, what happens is our benchmark determines our happiness. Our benchmark determines our happiness. When we set the, the benchmark or the bar high, our happiness is gone because we feel like we haven't reached it. We haven't attained it. When we set it low, then we feel good because, well, you know, I'm better than that. I, or I, I've, I've done it. I've done enough. But our benchmark is completely unattainable because our benchmark should be Jesus Christ. The good thing about that is that we just talked about we've been empowered. We've been empowered and imbued with the power of the Holy Spirit. and We've been granted the opportunity to do great and mighty things. To be awesome in Christ. You know, you talk about all the things that you could be awesome at. Be awesome at being a Christian. Be awesome at getting close to Jesus and getting to know him intimately. Because I guarantee you, if we can all focus on that, God is going to do great and awesome things through us. Not just in us, but through us. And then you don't have to worry about it. You can be like Mordecai, as we're going to see later. Mordecai has all of these awesome things happen to him, and the next day he goes to work. It would be like winning the lottery, and then the next day he just showed up for work because, well, I just, I enjoy doing what I do. And that's what it is to be a Christian, to be just filled with this power, this tremendous blessing, this opportunity of being able to spend quality time with God at every moment of every day, to be filled with the power of God, to be able to do God's will, to be a part of advancing his kingdom, to bring others into the family of Christ, to do all of these things and to enjoy it and then to continue to just do greater and greater things, not for the sake of doing great things, but just for the sake of being used, just for the sake of being used by God. You've called me higher. You've called me to more than just what, whatever the mundane fleshly life is. You've called me to so much more. But Haman wasn't like that. Haman had lost it all because he didn't know what joy was. He only knew what happiness was, and happiness was fleeting. And so Haman goes home. He brags. He does all of these things. And then he finally comes to, to this place where he, he's at his wit's end. He doesn't know what to do. And then his wife pipes in. The first time that we see his wife mention anything, and his wife is probably more evil than he is. In verse 14 it says then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him let a gallows be made 50 cubits high 75 feet and in the morning suggest to the king that Mordecai be hanged on it then go merrily with the king to the banquet and the thing pleased Haman so he had the gallows made. I was listening to a bible study and he was talking about it it's almost like you know coming home and and you, you you don't know what to do and you're talking to your wife and your wife gives you this great idea and you you just turn and you look at her and you smile and you say, see, that's why I married you. You're, you're just amazing. Haman walked in and he, and he goes through all this stuff and, and Zeresh says, just kill him. And, and Haman goes, that's why I married you. That's, I love you so much. That, that's such a great idea. I, I just can't believe, I don't know how I didn't think of that first. And so he, he goes and he does. He, he's going to build this gallows. There's a little bit of debate. Whether it was to actually hang him or whether it was just his big pole and they were going to impale him. But either way, 75 feet high in your front yard, I mean, that's like, that's a big spectacle, okay? This is not like, you know, something that he was trying to hide. This was going to be for everybody to see, 75 feet high, a gallows, 75 feet high, so that he could get rid of this guy. But not only that, but once he did it, then he was going to be able to go merrily to his banquet, like, that was going to make his day. Like, that's how bad this guy was. That's how evil this man was. That's how much evil resided in him. You know, I, I find it hard to, to see an animal get hurt. You know, much less to see somebody that, that I dislike get hurt. You know, I, like, even if I dislike you even if I really can't stand you at all, even if you did something just extremely awful to me, I still don't think I could just happily watch you die and then go, go have a good dinner after that. Like that, that would just, it doesn't, doesn't resonate with me. I don't, I don't understand how that can happen. But that's how evil this man was. That's how evil his wife was. And that's how evil his friends were. Bad company corrupts good habits. Bad company encourages bad habits. So if you're hanging around with people that are messed up, they're going to try to mess you up. It's a pretty simple deal. If you're hanging around with people that are trying to do the right thing, hopefully those right things are going to rub off on you. We need to be aware of not only our character, but the character of the people that we surround ourselves with. Are we truly trying to make a difference? And are we trying to be different? So all of this takes place, and then we get to chapter 6. In verse 1 of chapter 6, says that night the king could not sleep. So one was commanded to bring the book of the records of the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written that Mordecai had told of Bictana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, the doorkeepers who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus, King Xerxes. And then the king said, What honor or dignity has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? And the king's servants who attended him said, Nothing has been done for him. And so the king said, Who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to suggest that the king hang Mordecai on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And so the king's servant said to him, Haman is there standing in the court, and the king said, let him come in. And so this is the same night. You know, the the king went back to to his royal bedchambers. The queen went back to her separate bedchambers. Haman went home, and he had this whole long conversation with his wife and with his friends. And, And that night, the king couldn't sleep. You know, you guys have been there. Somebody said, hey, I need to talk to you. What about? Well, I'll talk to you tomorrow. And you're like, "What? What? you can't do that to me. What do you mean you talk to me tomorrow? Like now now for 24 hours, I'm going to be messed up trying to figure out what it is that's such a big deal that you can't talk to me right now, but you need to talk to me tomorrow about. And that's where the king's at. Esther says, you know what? If I've found favor in your eyes at all, just come back tomorrow, and, and tomorrow I'll be ready to ask you. A, the, the implication there is that this is a big thing that she's about to ask. And so the king can't sleep. So somebody is commanded to bring the book of the records of the chronicles. Now, it, it's written down, the historians all agree that, that the Persians were great at detailing and chronicling everything that happened within the, the monarchy, within the royalty. And so these records were extremely detailed. You know, it had dates, it had the, the whole situation, it had names, you know, probably family histories, like the whole nine yards. Like everything was in this. And so I don't know if this was boring to him and, and so maybe it would make him fall asleep. I don't know if he was just so, so not tired that he wanted to go back and recount and relive his glories. I don't know what it was, but for whatever reason, somebody was called to bring the book of the records and God ordained that these people would bring that particular book and start reading from that particular event. Like this this is not random. God is not random. God is perfect. And so this all began to come to fruition. God's plan began to come to fruition. And so the king can't sleep. He's thinking about it. They bring the records. Mordecai's account is described. And the king says, you know, I remember that. What happened to Mordecai? What did we do for Mordecai? And then they, they tell him, you know what, we haven't done anything for him. Nothing happened. He didn't gain anything for, for being the guy that, that found the guys who were going to assassinate you. And so he says, you know what, we need to do something for him. Who's in the court? Like Who's here that we can get to help to, to think about what we can do? And then they said, Haman has, Haman's in the court. Well, bring Haman in. Send Haman in. And the, re- the only reason that Haman was there was because Haman was coming to ask to kill Mordecai. And so Haman came in in verse 6, and the king asked him, What shall be done for the man whom the king delights to honor? And now Haman thought in his heart, he didn't say it out loud, but he thought in his heart, Who would the king delight to honor more than me? I mean, he's just totally blinded by arrogance. He, he's already second in command, and yet the king calls him in and he says, hey, You know, I want to honor somebody. What should I do? And Haman immediately thinks, well, he must want to honor me because who else would there be to honor? And so he, he, over, he goes overboard, just totally oversteps. Like if, if he had been told from the get-go that this was not going to be for him, I guarantee you this conversation would have gone differently. But he thinks it's for him, and so in his heart he understands that or, or believes he understands that. But out of his mouth, he says, For the man whom the king delights to honor... Let a royal robe be brought, which the king has worn, and a horse on which the king is ridden, which has a royal crest placed on its head. Then let this robe and horse be delivered to the hand of one of the king's most noble princes, that he may array the man whom the king delights to honor. Then parade him on horseback through the city square, and proclaim before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor." Now, this was totally blown out of proportion, but it was still something that, that was fairly common to, to honor someone who had honored the king. Because, one of the, I mean, you talk about the, the time that they were in, they had this vast empire, and one of the best ways to get on the good side of the king was to, to do something that showed extreme loyalty to the king. And if you showed loyalty to the king, that was pretty much esteemed above just about anything else. Because that's what they needed to continue to run an empire that massive at that time. This was not something that you could control the way that things can be controlled nowadays with modern technology, with all the advances that we've made. So you had word of mouth, really. And so you needed loyalty. And that that was one of the things that they they strived for. And so when they found this, they honored it greatly. But again, Haman totally blew this one out of proportion because he believed that he was the one to be honored. And so all of this stuff was, was out of the ordinary. And so in verse 10, the king said to Haman, Hurry, take the robe and the horses you have suggested and do so for Mordecai the Jew. Like of all the ironic twists that could happen in a story, you know, he comes in, and he, he's now flying high again. You know, he left the banquet. He was doing great. He saw Mordecai. Now he's in the pits. He goes home. He brags to, to his wife and his friends and then tells him, woe is me. And then at the end of it, they say, look, all you got to do is kill him. If you just kill this one guy, I know that you're already going to kill the rest of them in 11 months, but just kill this one guy. Just take this one guy out of the picture, and you'll be back to normal. And so he comes. This is It's not even morning yet. It's not even morning yet. And Haman comes back so that he can ask if he can kill Mordecai. And before he can even ask anything, the king asks him, what should I do for the one that I want to honor? And, and Haman just goes through and totally blows it, tells him all these things. And the king immediately turns out and says, that's it. That sounds great. Do everything that you've said. Don't let anything that you have mentioned not happen. Go out and do it all and do it for Mordecai the Jew. I'm sure that there was probably, you know, just like... I've felt that before. Like I, I'm sure that most of us have. Like you're, you just go from feeling, even if you're just not, not even feeling good, even if you're just like having an okay day, and then you get hit with a bomb, you're just like, oh my goodness. You know, it's like you can literally feel your heart drop. You know, it, all of a sudden it, it like goes up 20 degrees. You know, one of the easiest ones is when you're cruising along on the freeway and all of a sudden you see the lights. Like immediately. I, even when it's not me, even when I immediately looked down and I noticed that I was going the speed limit, I was doing everything right, it still takes a while for my blood pressure to go down, for my body temperature to come down, just because there's that, that fear, like it's that sinking feeling. You know, I, I used to get that all the time, even, even as a grown man, when my dad would call me to call me into his office, we, we worked together here for many years, I would still get that sinking feeling. And a lot of times it wouldn't even be bad stuff. You know, you'd be coming to tell me something good that had happened, but hey, I need to talk to you. And boom, you know, it was just like everything dropped. So we understand what that feels like. And now multiply that times 100. He's just gotten back to the highest of heights because he's, this is a great plan. And if the king already said okay to letting me wipe out all of the Jews, of course he's going to let me wipe out one of them. And so he goes in, and he's going to ask this question, and before he can open his mouth, all this stuff takes place, and then the king turns around and he says, go ahead and go honor Mordecai. Not only go go let that be done, but he says, you go do it. This man that he hates more than anyone else, now he has to go and parade him around the streets and say, let this be done for everyone that the king desires to honor. I mean, talk about a reversal of fortune. The irony of all of that that takes place. And in my mind, it brings to my remembrance Psalm 23. That he prepares a table for me in the midst of my enemies. That even when the, I, I go through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. That God is always there. God always has a plan. Like it is never something that, that we get into something horrible and, and, and God's overwhelmed doesn't matter where we are sometimes it's even our own doing that has gotten us into that pit and yet god still has a way of escape god has already prepared it for us we just have to get our eyes back on him and so mordecai again is a picture of the spirit haman a picture of the flesh and so he goes through and he does all these things and so the king said to haman hurry do all that you've suggested." And do it for Mordecai the Jew, who sits within the king's gate, leave nothing undone of all that you have spoken. And so in verse 11, Haman took the robe and the horse, arrayed Mordecai and led him on horseback through the city square, and proclaimed before him, Thus it shall be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Afterward, Mordecai went back to the king's gate. Mordecai just went back to doing what he was supposed to do. You know, he had just been paraded around the city, and, you know, given all of this honor and glory and fame, and it really didn't mean that much to him. After it was all over, you know, it was a nice thing. It was nice that people honored him, that, that people respected him. But that wasn't why he was doing what he was doing. He was doing it because it was the right thing to do. And so afterwards, he was still the same person. You know, there are so many descriptions, in, even in today's society, of Christians who are living rightly that the people meet, and they're well off for whatever reason, whether it's financial, whether it's in... Uh, prestige acclaim you know uh, they're great musicians or vocalists or artists or you know just whatever great business people whatever it is and and the stories of the people that meet them and and they come away from those meetings saying you know what they're just good people like you you wouldn't even know that they they're famous or you wouldn't even know that they're rich because they don't lord it over you they they're just humble people and and they just love the lord You know, if if people can say that about people that have all those things, shouldn't they be able to say that about the rest of us who don't have all those things? And yet sometimes our testimony, our witness, is so horrible. Because we're more like Haman than Mordecai. Because we we want people to know about all of the good things that we've done. Hey, did you see that, that thing that I did the other day? Did you see that gift that I gave? Did you see whatever? You know, we should desire to be the people that are in the background. We should desire that. It doesn't mean false humility. We've talked about that before. You know, oh, you know, it, it was nothing. I, You know, I just, I do that stuff all the time. It's not a big deal. No, I, that's false humility. That's, that's actually being more arrogant than if you just came out and said, I'm awesome. You know, so just avoid that. But be humble. Recognize why you have everything that you have. Every good thing in your life and my life is from God every single one you know go down the list you know your wife your kids your your job your your money your your looks for those of you that have them whatever it is like all of those things are gifts from god you didn't earn any of that you had to be faithful you had to do a little bit of something but god did all the heavy lifting and if we can keep that in the forefront of our minds we can stay in the place that Mordecai was and not end up where Haman was. But Mordecai goes back to the king's gate, and in the end of uh, verse 12 there, Haman hurried to his house, mourning and with his head covered. You know, he was even lower now than he was when he had first come back. So when Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him, his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of Jewish descent— You will not prevail against him, but will surely fall before him. So gone is all the wisdom from from the night before. Now he comes back and he tells them what's happened. And now now they're telling him, okay, look, maybe we might have jumped the gun a little bit. Because if you're already failing like this, then you're going to fall even harder if you continue down this path. And so, in verse 14, while they were still talking with him, the king's eunuchs came, and they hastened to bring Haman to the banquet, which Esther had prepared. And that's where we're going to wrap it up tonight, and we'll pick it up next week as we we close it out and see exactly what happens. Um, It's just an amazing story. Just all the the twists, the turns of, of the events. But Haman... Haman had so many opportunities, so many opportunities to do the right thing. And he chose to do the wrong thing every time. It wasn't even one of those things where he did a few right and then he did a few wrong. It was just at every turn, every blessing that he had been given, because sometimes people that, that are not Christians, people that don't know Jesus, they still have blessed lives. You know, Read through the Psalms. Look at what David said. Look around you. You know, there are people that that are very, very blessed that have no recognition of Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And yet they have been given so much and have so many opportunities and they fail to see the goodness and the glory of God. And the opposite side is Mordecai. And we need to, to be aware of both because I truly believe that we have a little bit of Mordecai and a little bit of Haman in us all the time. And we have to be aware of that and we have to be on guard because it is so easy for us to become so complacent in our spiritual walk because we get so caught up in all of me. So caught up in all of me. Don't focus on how great you are. Focus on how great God is and you will forget how great you thought you were. Say that again and that's where we'll close tonight. Don't focus on how great you are. Focus on how great God is, and I promise you will forget how great you thought you were. And if we can stay in that place, God is going to continue to obviously be great, but he's going to continue to do great and awesome things in us and through us. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you, Lord, for giving us time to study tonight. And Lord, we thank you for the ways that you continue to speak to our hearts through it, about our lives. Uh, we pray that, that every time that we, we open your word, every time that we, we desire to read through and, and to study and to, to learn more about it and more about you, we pray, Lord, that you would help us to apply it to our lives, that it would never just be an academic exercise, that it would never just be something that, that was a good talk or, or a good devotion or a, a good time reading or, or anything like that. But, Lord, we pray that it would be meaningful and impactful to our lives, that it would literally be life-changing in us. I especially pray for that tonight, that that you would continue to to refine us, that you would purify us, that that you would help us to see the ways that, that we're like Haman and help us to see the ways that we're like Mordecai. And most importantly, that you would help us to see how to be more like you. Lord, I pray for each heart here. Lord, that all of us would be... Just attune to you and to your desires, to your will for our lives. Help us to be discerning in every choice, every decision that we make. And Lord, we pray that our love for you would just shine brightly, that your light would shine through our lives into the lives of every single person that we meet. And so we give you all the praise, glory, and honor, and we ask and pray all these things in the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen.